Hello, friends, and welcome once again to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rupert. And I'm Steve McDonough. On each and every episode of But I Digest, we like to feature a unique food or ingredient, harvesting the heavy pods of its history, crossing the equator to meet its heroes, and roasting the beans of its glorious hoopla. And today's topic is dark chocolate. Not just any uh, chocolate, dark chocolate. Dark chocolate. Now, of course, we have to touch a little of on the regular chocolate history, but today is particularly sweet because our dear friend and fellow Food Network star alumni, Nathan Lyon, is here with us in the house. Hello, Nathan. Nathan. Gentlemen, it is such a pleasure. And I'm sorry it took me so long to uh, to jump on this fun food train. But now that I'm here, let's fill up the chocolate dunk tank and get sticky. Oh, that's a good idea. It's a good visual. The chocolate dunk. What do you what do you throw at the chocolate dunk tank? Another tongue. Beignets. Beignets. Oh, Ooh, I like good. it. You gotta throw them hard. Well, if uh, you listener are not familiar with Nathan Lyon, he is an Emmy Award nominated cooking show host, cookbook author. Uh, that you might have seen on the Food Network or on Discovery Health. He does a lot of work uh, with the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Sustainable Seafood Ambassador Program. Honestly, he's all over the place, uh, and he's all over the the uh, social medias, does a lot with uh, Cho Chocolate. Uh, and that is the reason we asked him to join us today, and he's our tall, dark, and uh, uh, mysterious dark chocolate guest for today's episode. Got it. Got it. He hasn't seen me in a long time. I'm I have no hair. I'm quite <laughs> pale. And most of my family is from either Ireland or Scotland. Honestly, that's the truth. Well, I was I, mean, I was glad I'm glad you said that because I was thinking that and I was like, well, you know, let's not get off on the wrong foot. Well, <laughs> I mean, this is audio. That was letting the listener kind of imagine you as uh, anyway. Um, so let's talk about uh, dark chocolate. And, and the reason we are sticking uh, with dark chocolate is chocolate is such a huge huge topic that we just thought we need to narrow this down a bit. Uh, but again, we will have to kind of cross roads with uh, with chocolate in general. So let's start, as I always like to do, with what is what are we talking about? So on the science nerdy part of things, it comes from a plant. If you if you didn't know that uh, the cacao plant and uh, it is um, or it's sort of a tree. It's it's this evergreen shrubby tree. Uh, and the uh, the Latin name I somehow have uh, deleted. No, here we go. It's Theobroma cacao. Oh, thank God! I Theo, thought we were going to get. Well, I thought we were going to have a podcast where you didn't tell us the goddamn <laughs> Latin name of something. Look, and we lose all our Latin listeners. I know. I am sponsored by the country of Latin, so I ha- we have to get that in there. Um, but that, but it is. We've talked about other members in uh, sort of cousins of cacao. So it's in the larger Malvaceae family. Uh, and for bonus points, some of you might remember uh, our friend okra uh, is uh, is from that family, the same family. So things like okra, cotton, hibiscus, and even the marshmallow flower, which Steve didn't mm, realize mm-hmm. that mallow was a was a flower. You don't harvest no. marshmallows from the mallow. Uh, plant but uh, regardless it is uh, it's a tropical uh, plant that originated in central and south america uh, and that's kind of where where we know it from so um, my first encounter with a real plant was at the uh, the national gardens in washington dc they have a beautiful kind of cacao indoor forest and what an odd looking plant and we'll we'll kind of get into that because i know nathan's got his own little uh, chocolate farm happening. Uh, but it really is unusual that the fruits actually grow out of the, the the trunk of the tree, right? I mean, it almost looks like it's got Nerf ball acne. Like there's these Nerf footballs jutting out from the side of this tree. So it's a really cool looking uh, <laughs> plant. Whoever decided that they wanted to eat that thing was either brave or really hungry. So um, so let's talk a bit about the, the history as what we know about it. Uh, it. We can date it all the way back to the Olmec people of Central and South America. And this predates the Mayans, the Incans, the Zapotecas, the Mixtecas. So this is way back. And they didn't keep written records, but they've found, scientists have found traces of theobromine, which is one of the very specific uh, compounds from uh, from the cacao plant. Um, it's a stimulant like like caffeine. Uh, and they found traces of this in some of these uh, kind of vessels and pots dating all the way back to 1500 BC. And the Olmec people's love of cacao was passed on then to the Mayans, who later occupied that central South American. And the Mayans used it in celebrations, and they also used it to finalize important transactions, right? So at the end of a business transaction, they would uh, they would have some chocolate as a way as a – which I like that idea. I think yeah. we should bring that back as a, as a tradition, right? I like it's that. Not, it's not official – until you've signed it and had a little chocolate. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> Why not? So who, who, do, who do we suggest that to? Um, but so now the what we think of today as chocolate versus what they, they had chocolate was totally different. The, the Mayans had this very thick and frothy beverage that they consumed often combined with chili peppers. Honey uh, can be made with water or with milk. And that then evolved into the, the Aztecs then sort of came. And I'm not saying this was a friendly transition, but as the Aztecs uh, joined the neighborhood, uh, they took the love of chocolate to a completely different level. And the, it's the Aztecs that kind of gave us the name that we uh, we think of as chocolate. They called it cho- Chocolatl, but with an X, just to be cool. You know, they had the big old yeah, X, yeah. just to confuse us all. Uh, so Chocolatl uh, literally means a gift from the gods, right? So that's um, they believed that, that chocolate was was a gift from the gods. And they uh, enjoyed their chocolate beverages, both hot and cold. Uh, from these very ornate containers that they made from from clay. So we have all this collection of very neat, uh, like the people who collect mugs from every every state they've gone to. Well, the Aztecs were way ahead of that trend. Oh, I'll have to uh, look for those. Maybe I'll put yeah. one, uh, a picture up on Facebook of yeah, that. Next That's time, interesting. Yeah, next time you're going No, through I'm not talking about shopping. I'm talking about the <laughs> Facebook. I'm talking about the Facebook. <laughs> We'll find you some. I was just thinking that would be cool to have like a Tenochtitlan uh, gift shop where you stop by and pick up your nice new uh, chocolate mug. So um, these ornate containers, they they uh, again, they, they were kind of a part of their ceremonies. And again, they drank it hot or cold, which, again, I think is way ahead of their time to be drinking some some cold chocolate. Uh, but the cacao beans themselves were so valuable that they traded them as currency and they were considered more valuable than gold. And we have this 16th century Aztec document that gives you sort of the, uh, the exchange rate where one cacao bean could be traded for one tamale. And I, <laughs> it didn't specify what kind of tamale it was, but hopefully it was a good one. Uh, but 100 cacao beans could be used to purchase a good turkey hen. So there's your oh. exchange rate. One tamale for one bean, 100 beans for a good turkey. Uh, yeah. So uh, – I don't know if you can use that today. We should try. Go to Hershey, Pennsylvania and see if you could uh, haggle with a turkey for something. See what happens. Um, They will probably promptly escort you out the building. (laughs) So uh, let's let's jump forward a little bit uh, and we won't get into the often bloody history of um, colonialism and uh, European uh, expansion into the new world. But there's there's some conflicting history on when exactly chocolate came from the quote unquote new world back to Europe, but it's it's widely read upon that it came through Spain. So in the 1500s, it either came back with Christopher Columbus and one of his uh, ships to and from, or more likely with the infamous Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés, um, who depending on which side of history you're on was either a really good guy or a really bad guy, um, depending on which you know, which filter and what your accent is. Um, but we know that Cortés actually shared chocolate with the Aztecs. So he actually was sitting in the court of Montezuma and was uh, having chocolate. But of course, again, it was this very bitter, sometimes spicy drink. And uh, Montezuma II reportedly drank over a gallon of, of chocolate uh, each day. And it was supposed to be uh, for virility and it was supposed to be an aphrodisiac. Um, but, you know, again, that's that's possibly hearsay. Uh, wait, wait, hold on a sec. So Cortez, uh, didn't he have that big connection to the vanilla as well? The vanilla bean? Yep, absolutely. So the yep. whole chocolate vanilla, he's like our first our first star baker. Yeah, I mean, again, his star on the walk of his star on the on the culinary walk of fame would probably be graffitied over many times by uh, the indigenous peoples of the world because he also was nice enough to bring smallpox and uh, herpes and all sorts of fun other treats to the new world. Nothing, so, nothing makes you feel better about your smallpox and herpes than the chocolate, chocolate and, the and vanilla. vanilla. So he was, I mean, he was well-rounded. This this Cortez, you know, it, it uh, a spoonful of uh, of vanilla helps the medicine go down. So and chocolate mm. too, and a chocolate kiss on your pillow. So <laughs> once, however, it got there. Once chocolate got to Spain, the love of chocolate quickly spread throughout Europe, and you started to get these sort of modern additions, like cane sugar was being added um, to chocolate to sort of yeah, get that bitter edge, right? Uh, and things like cinnamon, because the Europeans, those fancy Europeans with their frilly collars and uh, and white powdered wigs tend to have a sweet tooth with, with what teeth they had still in their head. Uh, and so chocolate sort of got its, um, you know, its, its, its start in Spain and then quickly spread worldwide from Spain all the way to, um, to a young Nathan Lyon, 
Um, so oh. uh, let's talk about Nathan Lyon's history with uh, with chocolate. And what was your relationship with Cortez off the record? <laughs> you know, I would say none. But the interesting thing is, if you are an avid listener of this podcast, as I am, you will learn that the joke was on them when they brought it back to Europe, that being vanilla uh, mostly. You know, they didn't they didn't have uh, a way to pollinate it. So it didn't Very do good. all of its magic, as you would learn in the podcast for Vanilla. With Very Gail Gand, Chef Gail Gand, doing a exactly. little Cortez action so there. She, Very, thank you very much for the for the bringing course. that around. If you haven't heard that one, please do. It's wonderful. <laughs> wow. um, so, uh, you know, my journey, I'm from originally from Arlington, Virginia, not a tropical place by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, as you had pointed out, Hans, that originated in the Amazonian basin, uh, cacao trees. They are really funky looking. It looks like a childhood book. Um, but my exposure first started, I think, probably the same as you guys did, which is somebody's grandmother made some chocolate cookies or some brownies, and you sucked them down your gullet, and you had your favorite candy bar as a kid. But but I didn't really think of it as anything more than just a coating um, or something a little sweet that was had a little morsel in it that you had to fight your brothers over. But it really wasn't until... I went to culinary school, actually, that it started to take a slightly different form. And I'm not sure about you guys, but, you know, you, you have access to different types of chocolates with different uh, cocoa percentages in it. And you learn that the, the, when you bake something with a different percentage, a lower or a higher percentage milk or dark chocolate, it just acts differently. So you can't just willy nilly grab for the big vat that says chocolate with a capital substitute. C. Yeah, it just doesn't work anymore. And, you know, and then and then things took a real pivotal change at the fancy food show up in the in the Bay Area, where I met the chief chocolate maker of Cho Chocolate, Brad Kinser, which is now in Berkeley, California. And he's like my chocolate sensei. He's where I go to for all my chocolate knowledge. We sit, we chat, and we geek out on all things chocolate. And then he introduced me to, he was sort of like, jumped over the phrase bean to bar which sounds really cool like you would see it in the bay area or in a cute little brooklyn shop or you're sipping espresso to a term say, called, say that again for people who don't know the phrase oh bean to bar you know it's like you have the cocoa bean and then you get the beans and you roast them yourself and then you make chocolate bars in-house usually small small sources but Cho and Brad go one, one step further and they go to the source of where the cacao or chocolate is grown. And it makes a massive difference because, actually I'll explain this better by telling you a story about one time when Hans contacted me, called me up, he was like, Nathan, I had a cup of coffee, actually an espresso, that smelled and tasted like blueberries. Do you remember this, Hans? Oh, yeah. It was the L.A. Mill, La Mill or whatever. Exactly. La Mill in Los Angeles. He just said blueberries. It was like shoving your face and drinking blueberries. And I think that's one of the things that Source to Bar really brings to light, which is much like wine uh, and coffee beans. It's all about terroir. So if you, like myself, like an espresso drink or a coffee drink that tastes like fudgy or cocoa that's more of a Central and South American location. But if you like your espresso to be more like bright and fruity and higher acid, that's more Ethiopian. And so you can really start to break down the flavor profiles of where coffee beans come from, because those are picked, they're beans, they're fermented. Same with wine. So wine has terroir. If you go and you have a certain grape that's grown on the western slope of the eastern side of Washington state, as opposed to the eastern side of the western it completely tastes different, even if it's the exact same vine. Well, Venus let's, um, let's pause for a second, because, again, we're foodie nerds. The word itself, I mean, it looks like the word terror, uh, yes. but there's an extra I in there. So uh, ter- if you have a lisp, that's a tough one. Uh, terrar, terrar. Terroir. Terroir. Yeah. Uh, but again, for the, for the non-initiated, I mean, so th- give us the armchair definition of that. Okay, so, for example, you've heard of, if you're a wine drinker, you've heard of Napa and you've heard of Sonoma. And one is on one side of a mountain range and the other city is on another side. If you took the exact same rootstock of grape, the exact same one, you cut it in half and you grew one 
portion of that rootstock in Sonoma and the other portion of that exact same genetically identical rootstock in Napa, they're going to taste different. They're going right. to taste different, even if it's the exact same genetic vine. And the reason why is because one has morning sun, one has evening sun, one has more clouds and humidity, one has more and different acidity in the soil. So all the things you have to take into account actually have almost nothing to do with the vine, the grapevine itself. So it has to do with the location. You could say that Georgia, specific, specific area of Georgia, has a certain terroir. Austin, Texas, where I am in right now, has a certain terroir. And if you were to grow the exact same whatever it is in different locations around the U.S., and in this case, around the world, um, it's going to taste different simply because of the location that you're in. Well, that's a great point. So, yeah, the same with uh, with here, Vidalia onions, that people tried to take that same onion elsewhere, but it's the soil in and around Vidalia, even when the same state, it's a completely different thing. So, yeah, so obviously the same holds true for for chocolate, which I didn't realize until uh, till I went with you to meet Brad at show. And he really did a great job of why didn't we have him on the show? I'm starting to re re question. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, so let's let's wrap this up. Oh, uh, wait! I, I think you're breaking up. Oh, oh no, no. <laughs> sorry. Pa- pass on Brad's so knowledge. Keep going. I'm sorry. Son of a gun. Well, the cool thing about, and this is from from Brad himself, when you talk about terroirs, we just thoroughly discussed. You go even further when it comes to cacao treats. So if you're in the Amazon and there's a little stream, and three of us are on one side of the stream next to a cacao tree, and about fifty feet across this stream is another tree and you make chocolate from the pods of each of those trees even though it's only 50 feet away it's going to taste completely different so it's a microclimate so the, the the reason i brought up wine and coffee is they've they've been celebrated to no end like it's already gone past the cool phase and the third wave and even the way that people write about it whimsically you know, people haven't gotten to that point with chocolate yet. It's probably 50 years behind coffee and wine. So the idea that, for example, most of the chocolate in the world is grown in West Africa. It just is. So if you want chocolate that's very fudgy, that's very like dark chocolate and cocoa, you're pretty much getting most of that chocolate from West Africa, Ghana mostly. If you like chocolate that's a little bit brighter, more floral, very fruity, like orange zest or lemon zest, you go to South America, right? So Central and South America. If you want something that's higher acid but fruity, you would go to Madagascar. Mm. What we talked about with terroir is the exact same thing. Even if you had the same type of cacao tree, you put it in these three different locations and you get completely different flavors without adding orange zest to the chocolate, without adding you know, floral notes to the chocolate. It just naturally occurs, which I think is fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. So um, just to give you a point on how this is something that needs to be discussed more, you don't really get that information on on a regular bar of chocolate. But to, to prove this point, you know, one of the things that I've switched to, I've pivoted to, is doing a lot of cooking demo and cook alongs. And I did this Valentine's Day cook along this this past year. And one of the guys you know, I did a bunch of things with chocolate and I was doing this chocolate raspberry tort, this fudge, it's like a fudgy pudding chocolate raspberry tort. And the guy, one of the guys was like, oh, hey, chocolate that tastes like chocolate. And I said, actually, not all chocolate tastes the same. And we sort of had a moment where it was this aha moment because we were all drinking wine that certain wines go well with certain types of foods and other types of wines don't go well with certain types of foods at all. And you can really accentuate foods using a particular type of chocolate. And that's what I love about Cho because I know what I'm getting. I can already move the needle and get certain flavor profiles just by reaching for a specific type of chocolate. And, you know, going back to the the coffee and the wine thing, fermentation is a very important thing. Fermentation. And most of the flavor in chocolate that you taste actually comes through fermentation. Okay. So Hans and I, when we do this, we have it down as the two of us and we kind of have some notes and we know when the transition is going. For you at home or listening in your car, what you don't know is that Nathan pretty much put his eyeball up to the (laughs) screen, blinking wildly and doing like finger bubbles 
to show me that he was wrapping up because I told me told him to give me the 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 sign. Now he's tugging on his ear. So yeah, now that, that's hold on. So if you're if you're listening in the car, here's your transition. So I was. <laughs> oh, this is ridiculous. Okay, so so Nathan, what I want to what I want to hear about you're talking about Cho. Oh, by the way, Cho is you work with Cho, yes. I work with him as like a friendly chef collaborative person. Could you spell so, it so that people know what it is? Certainly. It's T as in Tom, C as in, well, C, chocolate, um, H <laughs> as in Henry. Do you like that? And then O as in okay. so, so that That's show. That's what we're talking about if you want to look those up, folks. But uh, I want to talk a little more about dark chocolate so people understand the difference between this bitter dark chocolate and and the process of milk chocolate. Do you want to, do you want to address that a bit? I'll give it a go. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a chocolate maker, but from what I understand, let's let's start. I'll make it very brief. You have a cocoa bean, right? You get out of the cocoa pod. It looks like this weird DNA helix thing. You ferment the cocoa beans for X period of time. You dry them out. You crush them into very fine powdery stuff. But when you crush the bean, you also get liquid, right? So you get the solids and the liquid. That whole crushed bean thing is called uh, cacao or chocolate cocoa liquor, L-I-Q-U-O-R. It's the same thing as if you took almonds and you crushed them up very fine, you would get the solids and you would get the, the liquor or the oil, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's the same thing. So then you remove the, the liquid part, the oil part, and that's where you get cocoa butter. You may see that in skin creams and different types of foods that they use. And, and candy bars for sure. Coke, candy bars, absolutely. Yeah. But you also get cocoa powder. So that is the dry and the moist, let's call it. So you get cocoa powder where all the flavor is, yeah. cocoa butter, which has almost no flavor. Mm. And so those are the things you have to work with. You have cocoa butter, cocoa powder, and then sugar. Those are essential with the vanilla, lecithin, all those things play such a minor role, but you have those three ingredients, sugar, cocoa powder, and cocoa butter. So it's a, it's a sliding scale. It's very difficult to put your thumb on it because for example, you could have a 70% it says on the bar, 70% cocoa powder, and that would be considered a dark chocolate. But that can have a lot of cocoa liquor, whereas you could have another 70% on the bar, but it could be 60% cocoa liquor and 10% cocoa butter if you want it to be more creamy. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. It's a little bit different. One will be lighter in color, the one that's just cocoa liquor, and the one that has the cocoa liquor plus the butter, even though they're both exactly 70%, one will melt and be creamier, melt faster, and be a little bit lighter in color. And the crazy thing is there's not really even a definition, a hard, steadfast definition as far as like what's the cutoff to where you can call something dark chocolate. I've read as low as 35% is still considered dark chocolate. Keeping in mind that by and large, the rest of that number is pretty much sugar. So you were mentioning, you know, chocolate, darker ones are very bitter and acidic, which cocoa is, cocoa beans are. Um, so if you like something that's a little bit sweeter, you can have one that's maybe like 50% or even 60%. And when you start getting it in milk chocolate, that's what we're talking about, milk solids. And then, you know, it gives it even more of a creamy, creaminess feel to it. It masks a lot of the bitter and acidic flavors. Same yeah. way if you're, if you're a tea drinker, you put a splash of milk and the proteins in that milk bind with the bitterness. And that's why you have a splash of milk with your tea. Yeah. So if you, if you like milk chocolate, you like things that are slightly sweeter. You like them less bitter with just a hint of chocolate flavor. The same way if you like espresso, like Hans, you just take a shot of espresso. If you don't really want so much of that harsh, stronger flavor, pronounced flavor, you like a latte where it's mostly milk. Same sort of thing. Well, so what I was doing, thinking about the dark chocolate, specifically how dark chocolate is not really found in like candy bars. Now it's found in chocolate bars. You can have a Dove bar or a Lint chocolate or a Ghirardelli dark chocolate bar, but you don't find dark chocolate in like a branded multi-ingredient item. Like Milky Way has a Milky Way midnight enrobed in dark chocolate. But right. I was looking, there's no real dark chocolate candy bars. So as I was going through that, I was thinking about, you know, Milky Way and Hershey's Kisses and like what made those names. And so I got off on a tangent and I'm dragging you down. So this is what we're going to do. I am going to talk about these candies, ask you guys if you know why they're called what they are, and then I'm going to follow it up with an interesting fact. 
So here we go. We're going to start. We're going to dive right in. Why are they called Hershey's Kisses? Oh, wow. I'd never even thought about that. I just thought it was a little peck of sweet. I don't know. I just maybe the personification of a little bit of sweet. Wrong. They're called Hershey's Kisses because when they drop onto the conveyor belt, they make a little uh, smooch sound. Uh, really? Yeah. In, in fact, I'll tell you guys, one of the things I was studying was I found this YouTube of uh, an old um, Unwrapped with our buddy Mark Summers. Nice. And he did this. He just did the most Mark Summers thing that you guys will know. He goes, they're one of the littlest products that has such a huge place in Hershey history. <laughs> nice. It's got that Mark Summers pause. Yep, that's right. And then the Mark Summers smile to the camera. It's, it's almost like a, like he's uh, William Shatner's uh, cousin through marriage. He's got a little <laughs> bit of Shatner in there. So here's my interesting uh, Hershey Kiss fact. During World War II, Hershey's Kisses were temporarily suspended for the war effort. Two reasons. One, there wasn't foil for the outside of the candies. But the other, of course, is that the U.S. approached the Hershey Company about creating a survival ration bar for the troops, a chocolate bar. It was called a Ration D bar. So it was a chocolate bar stuffed with vitamins and nutrients, 600 calories, something that the troops could carry uh, as an emergency field ration. And they made it with raw oats to keep it from melting. We were talking about it melting before. And the army didn't want it to be a tasty snack. They didn't want people to eat it at the wrong time. So uh, it was made to be a quote, a little better than a boiled potato. <laughs> Apparently it was awful and it was so hard that the troops had to just shave little slices off with a knife before they could chew it. And if you, there was a little warning on it that said, eat this slowly over 30 minutes. And if you didn't, uh, it caused a uh, severe constipation. Wow. Yeah. Three Musketeers. Why is it called Three Musketeers, gentlemen? Because uh, the fourth one was on uh, sick leave. Nathan? <laughs> No guess? Wow. This is, I mean, you guys are just shooting out of the barrel, aren't you? I am. Um, three Musketeers, maybe it was uh, three uh, noble gentlemen that went to university together that developed this. Uh, You're cut uh, off. You're wrong. <laughs> three Musketeers used to be three individually wrapped in uh, three individually flavored bars in the same wrapper. It had a chocolate, a vanilla, and a strawberry in that wrapper. Well, three so Musketeers. Like a like a Neapolitan kind of an ice cream scoop well, in a yeah, candy Yeah, but three different, three different little bars in there. Wow. But they had to drop the strawberry one when the fruit prices were rising again during the war and the restrictions on sugar, and they turned it into one large chocolate bar. Damn. Interesting fact, 1951 on Howdy Doody. You know how they used to do the commercials on the air during these right. 1950s shows? Well, Buffalo Bob indoctrinated these children <laughs> with three musketeers bars <laughs> he, they, he he gave this commercial it was like the tokyo rose of candy bars the way he was talking to these kids they called it a big three musketeers bar and his quote was so now kids whenever you go to your candy store you'll be sure to look for and ask for the big three musketeers and it's such good candy that we sing about it too and then he forced the kids to sing a song about it <laughs> about the Three Musketeers song, which has no musical quality. So I have no idea how he made these poor little preschoolers memorize this song. Uh, I wish I had it. Oh, I do. Natalie, could you play the song? Nice. Okay, how about, uh, you know those Andes mints with the mountain? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. what are they named after? I mean, they look, it, I would assume the Andes mountains since they are, that's the thing. Uh, Damn, uh, you suck at this. Uh, the creator was Andrew Canellis. He owned a candy store in Chicago that he called Andy's Candies. Oh. Now, he was calling them Andy's Mints, but this is in the 1920s. So men didn't like giving their, their, their wives, their girlfriends, their skirts, boxes of candies with another fellow's name on it. Because ah. it was 1920s. So we had to switch it to the Andy's Mountains. And he put that, that logo on there. Interesting fact. When you go to eat at the Olive Garden, who goes to eat at the Olive Garden? <laughs> As one does. <laughs> yeah, no, I 
cannot remember. <laughs> I know we're not Olive Garden eaters, but do you know that that's what they give you after you eat at Olive Garden or Andy's Mints? Oh, but they, really? Yes, but I also don't eat at the Olive Garden, so I had to call them yesterday. I'm like, hi, do you still give out mints after your dinner? <laughs> <laughs> and they do, but they have them private labeled. Now, the thing about the Andy's Mints is it's like a sandwich. It's chocolate and then the, the, the peppermint and then another piece of chocolate above it. But um, Olive Gardens are just equal layers of chocolate and mint with the Andy's logo on them. Could could I make it to go order for Olive Garden and just get the mints? just get the mints? Yeah, people go wild for those mints. I found quite a few Reddits, subreddits on that. Why is it called a Milky Way? Nathan Lyon, you're up. Uh, because the first bite when they were recipe testing, the guy laid back, whimsically looked up into the sky and saw the Milky Way. Well, that's nice. You're, you're right. What? You're Wait, right. What? what? No, you're not right. It <laughs> was named the Milky Way. It was named after a chocolate malted milkshake called a Milky Way. At why the time. was it? Why was that called the Milky Way? Because the guy tried the milkshake. That's, and a, that's back our and... milkshake episode. We'll get to that. Oh, got it. This got it, is got it. this. Get away for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting fact: Milky Way owes its success to a predecessor because they have that thick, light, fluffy nougat. Now, that was kind of original. At the time, nougat was thicker. Sometimes yeah. it was crunchy. It was more of that Persian kind of nougat. Yeah, yeah. But then they started adding a lot more egg white, and this big became this fluffy nougat with this candy called the Fat Emma. Whoa. Man. I would totally buy a Fat Emma. A fat Emma. A fat I, Emma. I imagine. I imagine there's a slice of, of the demographic that uh, that didn't like that. Uh, didn't like that title. I don't know. I think that's an awesome title. No, it's a. Yeah, it's great. Why is it called a Snickers? People uh, at home, what are you doing as you're driving in the car? I'll give you a moment to think. You're at a red light. Why is it called a Snickers? <clears throat> you're wrong. <laughs> They're called a Snickers because the Mars family, which founded the Snickers, they named it after their horse. Oh. Snickers. 1930. Wow. Okay, Does the also taste better right out of the freezer? <laughs> <laughs> you, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that we could beat a couple dead horses. Uh, interesting fact, guys, you're going to love this one. So this past April, a viral rumor was spreading that Snickers, <laughs> Snickers are removing the world-renowned dick vein from the candy bar. Oof. So you know how Snickers yeah. has that vein on the top. And so someone went onto Twitter and posted a photo of a smooth Snickers, and he's saying it's happening. And Snopes had to come out and say the smooth bar is probably just a manufacturing error. And quote, Mars has not removed a dick vein from candy bars <laughs> after being pressured by a woke mob. Oh my god! So then Mars comes out on Twitter and says, "Good news! Contrary to what's trending on Twitter, the veins remain." And then the final. Uh, Twitter answer that I got from that was just four letters, and it was the word "few" from Elon <laughs> Musk. Really? Does no one have a job? <laughs> <laughs> Is anybody working? Well, uh. so, all right. I, that the whole idea of the of the dick bait cracks me up, and I'm so sorry to your your mom's friends. Hans, yes, my mom's they're friends. They're never going to look at a Snickers bar the same way again. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, I'm getting long. I'm going to cut some out. Uh, uh, how about uh, Mr. Goodbar? Why is it called a Mr. Goodbar? Uh, gosh, I, I don't know. Nathan, you got one? I mean, I, I always want to listen. He's just going to shoot me down as soon as I open my You're mouth. You're right. But, okay, done. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, here's the thing is, there's a great, rap song by LL Cool J called Mr. Goodbar and your your uh, listeners should listen to it. It's very, very good. He names off like 50 different candy bars in a rap. Amazing. Oh, that's oh. fun. Oh, okay. Yeah. All, right. All right. It's called I'm Mr. Goodbar. You deserve a visit from Mr. Goodbar. Is mm. the, is the no, no, and you, with, the, with the no Snickers you bar. So, and then he finishes with Dick Vane, I think is a <laughs> So according to Samuel Hinkle, the, the, the guy who invented the candy, Milton Hershey came up with the name himself because he was hard of hearing. And somebody, as they were testing, said, that's a good bar. And Milton uh -huh. Hershey thought they said Mr. Goodbar. And he goes, what? Mr. Goodbar? That's a great name. We'll call it Mr. Goodbar. And it was over. So interesting fact, in 2014, Hershey sued two separate cannabis companies in the same year both for uh, trademark infringement. They were selling items, uh, you know, marijuana items, like a Mr. Dank bar, 
Uh-huh. Um, Ganja Joy. Mm. Hasheath, which is hard to say, but very clever when you think about it. And my very favorite, my very favorite, Reefer's Peanut Butter Cups. Oh, that is a, that is a good one. That's good. Right? I like it. Uh, why is it called a Kit Kat? Uh, the sound when you snap it, it's kind of a connect. It's good. It's good. It's wrong, but it's good. It was originally the name of a Whig party club in London, Whig with an H, the conservative political party, not like right. a really fun Whig party, which would be better. So uh, it was named after a man called Christopher Catling, Kit Cat. He was oh. a pastry chef and pie maker, and he supplied the club with tarts and people from Roundtree's Candies were part of the club and they liked the name, so they trademarked it. Interesting fact, there's also a Kit Kat club in this Broadway musical, which is today's straight guy. Nathan, straight guy, are you? I am. There he goes. Okay, so we've got two. We've got two for the price of one today. Mm. Right. How's how's your Broadway knowledge, Nathan? It's probably as good as Hans, if not worse. Oh, my God. Really? That's bad. (laughs) I mean, I do know that on Broadway, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I, of course, didn't see it. I haven't heard it, but, you know, it's hard to go (laughs) against the original because it was so damn great. I definitely did not do that one because I knew thought it would be too easy. But this is easy. Set in Berlin as the Nazis are ascending to power. This 1967 Kander and Ebb musical opens with an MC welcoming us to the seedy Kit Kat Club and telling us to leave your troubles outside. So life is disappointing. Forget it. In here, life is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra is beautiful. And the show is? I think I know this one, but I'm going to give our guests a chance. No, I mean, I, I've watched it. I've seen it. I'm not pulling the name up. Yes. What? what? <sighs> uh, could just give him points for that. Because, you know, he, he knows it. He just doesn't know it. No, so I've, I think, definitely, yeah. I've definitely seen it. Because there's a certain part that I was, I was quote, near the end, and they, he's, uh, I'm just gonna blather on. Hey, like, listen, does it, does it rhyme with Cabernet? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it's all, it sounds like it. Yes, well done. Is that the one? Yes, Cabaret. Cabaret. All right, congratulations, yeah. guys. Uh, last week's Stumper was a rock musical loosely based on La Boheme, where nightclub dancer Mimi asks her neighbor Roger to light her candle. Songs include Seasons of Love, 500, 25,600 minutes, and it was Rent. Hans, you did not get that. No, and I've, ne- I've heard that song, but I've still never seen Rent. Okay, so my last one, and this one ends with something that is mind-blowing, I promise you. And people, you are going to drive off the road, so just be prepared. <laughs> Buckle up. Okay, why is it called a baby Ruth? Uh, is it Babe Ruth related? Baseball Babe Baseball Ruth related? Reference? Sure. Well, no. Oh. Okay, but there is an asterisk. It is named after President Grover Cleveland's daughter, Ruth. He had a, he had a baby in off, office. Baby uh. Ruth. That's why they named it. But in fairness, Babe Ruth was the reigning king of baseball at the time. So this was probably just like a really rotten way to screw Babe Ruth out of royalties. Oh, got it. So, yeah, because it's so close. But they say Grover Cleveland's daughter. You get half a point for Gryffindor. Gotcha. Man, I bet he about burst a dick vein when he found that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, you're mother's friends. <laughs> you just you set it up. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't right. do that. Not In- do that. Okay. Interesting fact. In 1923, the, the, uh, his name was Otto Schnering. He was the founder of the Curtis Candy Company. He hired a pilot, a guy named Doug Davis, who flew over Pittsburgh and dropped thousands of baby Ruths onto Pittsburgh. Each one was attached to a tiny rice paper parachute. Wow. So it caused so much havoc that city officials immediately met in an emergency meeting and specifically outlawed dropping candy bars from airplanes. But that's very specific. <laughs> so it was such a huge success that Schneering established the Baby Ruth Flying Circus. And he commissioned pilots across the country. They were dropping candy bars over beaches and you know, county fairs and racetracks. When Doug Davis flew over Coney Island, July 4th, 1926. Okay, 1926 newspaper. Extra, extra, read all about it. This is the New York Times. This is how they, they spoke in 1926, the New York Times. 
the crowd on the beach at Coney Island was nearly stampeded by an airplane which flew over the waterfront, dropping sample boxes of candy. There was a wild scramble for the sweets by men, boys, and women. Mrs. Yetta Carmen, 54, of 164 South 4th Street, was knocked down and her left leg was broken in the Whoa. mad rush for the candy. She was taken to Coney Island Hospital. I, I love that they gave her a specific address in that article. Like, so, <laughs> right. In case you want to go and send her flowers or candy. Yeah. That's it's great. like the original. It's like the original uh, Black Friday on, on Walmart. Yes. Yeah. You know? From the sky. Like they're just dropping. <laughs> Flat screen TVs. i it's televisions from the sky. No, does anybody want to see it anymore? Dropping yeah, Walmart probably so. All right. <laughs> okay. Here comes the part. You ready, guys? So Davis would often pick out a volunteer to ride with him to dump out the candy and pick a kid. So in Miami, he chose this 12-year-old boy whose father was a wholesale candy distributor in Southern Florida. The boy's name was Paul Tibbetts. It was his first ride in an airplane. 20 years later, after dropping the candy from the airplane, this kid was the commander and pilot of the Enola Gay, dropping Whoa. the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Wow. Damn. Wow. That, is, that is a career arc that nobody wow. saw coming. Is that not crazy? That is crazy. Yeah. That's a hell of a candy bar. That's wild. Yeah. So that that's the one I was setting you up for. Damn. Okay, I'm done. That was a lot. That was a lot. But brilliant, right? Did you just have fun? Oh, always brilliant. Always love your quizzes, too. I always fail them, but I come back for more. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if Nathan had fun. He, he's, he's been outside pulling weeds. I had to pull him back inside. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, let's talk about deliciousness and find out if Nathan has a recipe for us. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. I do, gentlemen. I, I definitely do. And it's a very humble recipe. And I've, I've found that, and you probably found the same, as a, as a chef, when you have too many ingredients, you make it too difficult, too many hoops to jump through, people are less likely to actually do it. Agreed. So as a, as a teacher, um, I try to empower people with a little bit of knowledge and this recipe is actually also in my cookbook where I have five seasons because I, I worked at farmer's markets for over a decade. I have a health science degree and I have spring, summer, autumn, uh, winter and chocolate as my fifth season oh. in the cookbook. Well, you didn't give us the title of the cookbook. It's called Great Food Starts Fresh and I self-published it. Uh, the Washington Post named it one of their top cookbooks of the year. and. What? I can only sell it through my website because it costs me so damn much money <laughs> to do. <laughs> so, but, but just to let you know, that's, that's how committed I am to chocolate that I made its, its own season. Each season has a slew of their own dessert recipes, but this particular recipe I'm sharing today is my real deal chocolate pudding recipe. Oh, chocolate pudding. And the, the interesting thing is it stemmed from when I was, a, I played a, a role uh, years ago on a TLC show. And as like the chef that comes in to help the house man or housewife uh, figure things out, how to cook yeah. healthy food, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. One season, so it didn't really matter. But uh, part of their branding of the show was that, that the chefs make a box of, chocolate pudding out of, a, out of a little box you see in the grocery store. It was a co-branded unit. And I was thinking to myself, how can I not be a complete asshole and go against my entire brand and of seasonal cooking from scratch? So I had to very, very tactfully and humbly say, I would love to make chocolate pudding and show you how easy it is to make it from scratch. And that's exactly how that uh, recipe got into the cookbook. And that's in awesome. fact, uh, I was just going to ask a quick question. Where where do you scratch? I beg your pardon. What? <laughs> where do you scratch to make this chocolate pudding? When he said he made it from scratch, you really interrupted the story for that. <laughs> I mean, listen. All right, we go through this all the time, Nathan. Here's the thing: one one of us is not a dad, and it's not me. So that is not. Well, I, yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. Him, this was. I was very interested. Hans like derailed this. Look, and he's cracking himself up. That's all. Look that's what I do. That's why the whole podcast exists for that. Okay, go ahead. Listen, take a road trip with this guy, and you get a lot of that too. So, yeah. a, a caffeinated version, nonetheless. So another, another really great thing about this chocolate pudding recipe is that 
uh, I was helping yet another Food Network star alumni, Reggie Sutherland, from my season, do a chefing gig. So I was the sous chef. And one of the guests that showed up saw me. It was like, you're uh, Chef Lion. I was like, yeah. He said, what are you doing here? I'm helping my buddy Reggie. He goes, I love your cookbook. We always make your real deal chocolate pudding for our guests. Oh, So out of that. literally 350 pages of cookbook, that was the one he pulled out. So it just shows yeah. when you make something from scratch, it's very easy. It affects you down to your core. It's a very comforting uh, recipe to make and uh, and you feel like you've accomplished quite a bit without without investing too much time or money or effort so uh so this is how i make it are you ready here we yeah. go everyone has their pots and pans out so, so just give us kind of like the delicious generals because right? i'm going to put the recipe on our website no easy peasy so uh as a chef one of the one of the things i like to do is take the dry ingredients which is sugar the cocoa powder which we discussed about all the flavor is a little cornstarch mix that together uh, whisk in a little bit of milk until you get a slurry to where all the powder is sort of in that liquid. R whisk in the rest of the milk, put it over a saucepan, and let it come to a simmer for one minute so the cornstarch is able to release its gelatinizing abilities. Pop in some chopped chocolate vanilla extract salt and some butter. And then the decision is up to you whether you like chocolate pudding, what is that, skin? That, oh, is, yeah. that will divide households. I oh, am not yeah, a yeah. chocolate pudding no, skin. No. I'm my on girlfriend. The... I love it. See, my girlfriend Sarah you loves would. the chocolate pudding skin. <laughs> and so you can eat it hot. You can let it you know, sit. You can have whatever you want to do. But if you want to, you can make it ahead of time. And it's very elegant. If you want to up the game, which I recommend, add a little bit of orange zest when you're whisking in the butter and the chocolate, and even a little bit of um, Grand Marnier as an orange mm -hmm. extract, if you happen to like orange with chocolate. And then if you don't like the skin, Steve and I were not skin people. You would just no, take- I, I, I always pull it off of my uh, Snickers bar. No, <laughs> please. Are you, are you also a dad, Steve? Come on. <laughs> That's uh, actually a vein. Isn't that a vein? Less than it's a, a vein. I don't know. I always also but was- Never a mind. little bit of uh, the, the plastic wrap to the surface, even though it's hot, uh, and then put it in the fridge, let it cool, and it will not adhere to the plastic film, and you will not have a chocolate skin. Yeah, and, uh, and it is an honor to share this recipe because I think it really affects people, and it's a wonderful way to cook with your kids. I'm looking at you, Hans, even though your kids are all grown up, um, but still love cooking, and I think you'll enjoy it. Well, I did a Brandy Alexander, and uh, a Brandy Alexander is actually a riff on a pre-prohibition cocktail called the Alexander. So the Alexander um, is equal parts gin, cream, and creme de cacao. Uh, creme de is equal parts gin, cream, and creme de cacao. Cre creme de Nathan. <laughs> creme de cacao. Cacao. Hold on. Cacao. Brandy Alex and Alexander is equal parts gin, cream, and creme de cacao which is a chocolate-flavored uh, liqueur made from cocoa beans and vodka. So at the turn of the century, 20th century, there was this fictional character in advertising named Phoebe Snow. Uh, she was dressed all in white, like snow. So in the early 1900s, if you were traveling by a coal-fueled train, you could end up all dirty. You could expect to arrive dirty. So one company started using anthracite, which was burning cleaner. And so to demonstrate that you could arrive without being covered in coal soot, they introduced this character named Phoebe Snow. And she's dressed all in white from head to toe. And she was the ambassador of this new clean way of train travel. Now, what would such a lady be drinking? An Alexander, of no. course, because it's, it's also white as snow. And as I told you, it's those three parts. So later, um, brandy was substituted for the gin, which I actually prefer because uh, I think I think the brandy is just a warmer ingredient in there. Um, and mine substitutes brandy, which I like because it, it makes it kind of a warmer drink and it allows for using a dark creme de uh, cacao, which I like as well. So uh, Beatles fans will be quick to remember that the Brandy Alexander was John Lennon's favorite cocktail. Also, it was what Mary Tyler Moore ordered when she was interviewing with uh, Mr. Grant when he tried to give her a shot of whiskey and she says, I'll have a Brandy Alexander. Nice. So uh, it's an ounce of brandy, an ounce of the dark creme de cacao, an ounce of cream, and that's it. You just uh, shake that up. I also have a more complicated one from my cocktail book where I use egg white and I really like an egg white in it. And I use a, a spirit called a, a, a rum cream. And that's the one I'm going to put up on the website. So 
a Brandy Alexander. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. Are you guys down with day drinking? Because I'm, I'm ready to actually take a sip of that. Oh, I'm 100% down with day drinking for sure. No problem with day drinking here. Yep. Just don't drive. So as always, if you want to get these recipes, and you should, because we have a guest chef, guest recipes, hooray, go to our website, ButIDigestPodcast.com. If you want to email us, go to ButIDigestPodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook. There's lots of stupidity going on there. And Twitter is at ButIDigestPod. Also on our website, you'll find a link to Hans's line of spices, as well as a link to download my cocktail book, The New Old Bar, and the Brandy Alexander recipe is in there as well. Today, we have special thanks to our guest, Nathan Lyon. Uh, we want to remind you that his book, Great Food Starts Fresh, is available at his website, chefnathanlyon.com. Yep. Beautiful and book. Hans, I recommend it 100%. Even though he just gave you a free recipe, <laughs> help the man out and get the cookbook. It's beautiful. It's one of those that you'll want to prop up on the kitchen counter to sort of up your up your kitchen game there. It's a really beautiful book. Thank you, Hans. And what was the name of what was the name of your PBS show? The PBS show I was on is called Growing a Greener World, uh, but it all started with um, a lion in the kitchen yeah, on Discovery yeah. Health and Fit. Oh, TV. that was Discovery. Yeah, is that back on again? No, no. Uh, Own actually took over start- Discovery Health. Yeah, and uh, and my last TV show that earned me the Emmy nomination of Outstanding Culinary Host is Good Food America with Nathan Lyon. Sweet. Yeah. Gentlemen, it is such an honor to share space with you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on your program. And thank you for filling my ears with incredibly interesting information and so many dad jokes. You can't shake a stick at them. <laughs> no, you can't shake a stick. <laughs> um, thank you again, Nathan. Our website is uh, designed by Hewitt Rabel. Our editor is Natalie DeChico. We gave, we're giving her a workout today. Special music by Corey Goodrich. And our theme music is by Brian Reyes. If you're enjoying our show, help us out. Give us a give us a rating wherever you find us. Hans, no, listen, I love it. And Nathan, we'll have you back on when we're talking sustainable seafood one day. We'll uh, this was a, this has been a blast. Thank you, my friend. Are we Thank done here? Go. We are done. Woohoo!